Good morning, church. Uh, it's good to be back with you. Um, today we're going to be talking about justice and solidarity. Justice and solidarity as we continue our conversations about what it means to live justly. Um, it's been said that you could only heal what you are able to reveal. Denial kills. With honesty comes hope of healing and transformation. There's a saying in 12 steps that goes something like this. Those who do not recover are people who are incapable of being honest with themselves. See, you don't have to convince addicts of these truths. Addicts know that the only way to move forward in healing is to live a life, or to live a life of fullness, is to be fully honest about who we are, Honest about where we've come from, and honest about what we are capable of. Brené Brown, as many of you know, one of my favorite authors, talks about the power of owning our stories. And she says that if we own our stories, we get to write the ending. But if we don't own our story, the story writes the ending for us. And owning our stories and being truthful about who we are is difficult. See, most of us would rather not go there. It's uncomfortable. We'd rather pretend. But this is why generational sin exists. Generational sin within families exists because families are unwilling to own painful and yet honest truths about who they are, where they've come from. And what they're capable of. But owning our story is what gives us the courage to pick up the pen and write the ending instead of having the story write the ending for us. Can y'all relate? Now I want you to think about this this morning collectively for this country as a whole. Think about the fact that maybe the pain of owning our collective story and facing it is not as painful as running from the story and the story owning us. As my friend Daniel Hill reminded us last week, the story of America is the lie of white supremacy. If we don't name it, we can't get rid of it. We can't not name it because we feel uncomfortable. But America was founded on the lie of a racial hierarchy White supremacy, the abhorrent demonic ideology belief that the white race is superior to other races biologically or cognitively was woven into the very fabric of our culture and embedded in every system, every institution in this country from the very get-go. White supremacy is what enabled the early founders of this country to buy, to trade, to own, to beat and kill other human beings created in the image of God. In order to buy, trade, kill human beings, we had to dehumanize them because human beings are not hardwired to treat people the way slaves are treated unless you dehumanize them, unless you see them as less than. Now here's the painful truth. That is not hundreds of years ago. That's recent history. It wasn't until the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 that U.S. outlawed racial discrimination, 
That means for generations, every category of opportunity, financial, educational, housing, medicine, law, entertainment, legal, you name it, that was available to whites was not available to non-white Americans. It wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that's five years before I was born, the people that looked like me were allowed to vote freely. Just think about that for a second. Every opportunity that is available to people that look like me, and I need to say this this morning, is possible because of the fight, the struggle, and the sacrifice made by my black brothers and sisters. Let me talk to you about the movie Parasite for a second. I've never had more people talk to me about a Korean film until Parasite came out. I've had a number of people go, whoa, that was such a great movie, so on and so forth. I have some news for you. Koreans have been making amazing movies for decades. And I've got Matt Stevens behind the camera who's nodding his head. Y'all just never bothered to look. The other thing that I want to mention is this. There is no way that in the year 2020, a Korean language film would win the best motion picture unless decades and generations our black brothers and sisters fought, struggled, so that there will be an opportunity for someone that looked like me to be acknowledged by the wider white culture. You need to get that. Now, I'm not downplaying the work that other people of color have made. There have been tremendous sacrifice and contributions, but let's be real about the fact that whatever contributions we've made is tiny compared to the work of our black brothers and sisters. That's a fact. You and I could only hear what you are able to reveal. The people talk about Leveling the playing field. We need to acknowledge that the playing field was never leveled to begin with. And it is still not leveled today. So is it really hard to believe that there will be lingering systemic consequences of hundreds of years of racist policies and ideology? Denying that racism exists itself is evidence that racism is alive and well. The pain and discomfort of owning our collective story so that we can be healed will be tiny compared to the pain and discomfort of allowing that story to write the ending. You and I are seeing firsthand what happens when we don't collectively own our story. George Floyd is what happens. Breonna Taylor is what happens. Ahmaud Arbery is what happens. Philando Castile is what happens. Mike Brown is what happens. And the story continues. Would you like to dismantle the lie of white supremacy? Sidebar, real quick. I have a challenging word for those of us that are, that are in the game, if you will. And the challenge is simply is this. I want to pose this question. How do you and I dismantle a lie if we ourselves are living a lie. Hey. How do we dismantle a lie? Let me push you a little bit. If you and I are, if you and I are living a lie. Henry Nouwen talks about three kinds of reconciliation. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with ourselves, and reconciliation with other people. 
And he makes this argument that in order for us to be recon do reconciliation with other people, you and I need to be reconciled to God first. So let me ask you a question. How's your spiritual life? How are you doing with Jesus? Are you aligned to the one who said, I am the truth and the life, and apart from me you can do nothing? How, how do we do truthful, powerful dismantling of lies if we ourselves are living a lie? And secondly, how do we dismantle a lie if we haven't even been reconciled to ourselves? Do you know who you are? How do you do reconciling work if you haven't even been reconciled to your own racial, ethnic identity? Everybody thinks of changing the world. Nobody thinks about changing themselves, Leo Tolse said. Change people will change the world. Uh, we're talking about justice, and we've been in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 58. And some of you will be relieved to know that I'm going to finish Isaiah 58 today. Like, how long is he going to talk about Isaiah 58? We could be here for weeks. The word of God is rich and deep. Can I get an amen? And we've been talking about justice. You know what's funny to me? What's funny to me is that some of y'all know the only Do you know that there are people who say to me, don't talk about that stuff because it's, it's political correctness. It's uh, social gospel. It's, uh, I, I've even heard people say it's leftist Marxist ideology. And what's funny to me is the people that level these arguments or level these accusations say that they take the Bible seriously. And the question that I have is this. I don't know what Bible they're reading, but I can't read this Bible without seeing over and over and over again God saying, I am a God of justice. I am a God of justice. I am a God of justice. So read your Bibles, people. Isaiah 58. Verse 1, shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trump and declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways and as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? But on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Because of their rebellion and their sins, even though their personal morality and their worship observances are spot on, God is not answering their prayers. Now, church, this is, again, where you and I need to read our Bibles carefully. I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we launched Isaiah 58 that the two primary sins, read your Bibles, two primary sins that the people of God were guilty of was idolatry and injustice. The sin of idolatry wasn't the people abandoning the God of Israel, the one true God, for another pagan God. I said this, idolatry that Israel was guilty of was worshiping God and Baal. 
It wasn't outright rejection of God, but it was, it was worshiping God and some lesser known God. The sin of idolatry that you and I are most susceptible of is an abandonment of the God of the Bible. It's always going to be worshiping, bowing down to some other lesser God along with God. That's why God says, have no other gods before me. Now, I'm going to take what Daniel Hill said last week, and I'm going to go a step further. And I might get myself into trouble, but that's okay. Considering what I just said in this context, I want to tell you that as long as the white church worships God and the false god of white supremacy, there will be no healing in this land. As long as the white church, but that's really strong language, Peter. Idolatry, yes, idolatry, a spiritual evil. As long as the white church worships God on Sunday mornings, dressing their best with personal morality, and worshiping the God of whiteness, worshiping the God of white supremacy, God will not hear our prayers and will not forgive us our sins and heal our land. I, it's with this context that I want you to hear a passage that I know many of you are familiar with. But what I just talked about, 2 Chronicles chapter 17, if my people who are called by my, he's talking to believers, he's talking to Christians, who call by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If there is to be racial healing in this land, there has to be genuine individual and corporate repentance from his people. People who acknowledge God as God. His people of the wicked sin of worshiping God and white supremacy. God and the idol of whiteness. It is then that God will hear the prayers of his people, forgive us our sins, and heal our land. Verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting that I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. We've begun laying the foundation of living justly. And I want to come back to this most critical foundation. Because if you don't get this, everything goes awry. Living justly is an act of worship. Living justly is an act of worship. This is why justice is a discipleship issue. This is why justice is about a whole life response to who God is and what he has done. I don't care about justice for justice's sake. I care about justice because I care about God. Like everything else in life, justice is about God. Can I get an amen? See, there's this small, obscure passage in Exodus that most of us just miss. But to me... It sets the foundation for the rest of the scriptures. In Exodus 8, verse 1, this is God talking to Moses. And God says, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that 
they might worship me. God says to Moses that the entire reason why he's delivering his people Israel from bondage to oppression, the only reason why God is setting them free from the hands of the oppressors, God's words, not mine, is so that they might what? Worship him. And clearly when God says, worship me, he's not talking about singing songs and listening to a sermon on Sunday. He's talking about a whole life response to who he is and what he has done. And God says to Moses, that worship is what I'm delivering you for. That worship is what I'm freeing you for. Our entire life is an act of worship and response to who God is and what he has done. And who is God? He says in Isaiah 61:8, I, the Lord, what? Love justice. The psalmist in Psalm 140:12, the Lord will maintain the cause of the oppressed and will execute justice for the needy. We pursue justice because God loves justice. We advocate for the, the, the powerless because God advocates for the powerless. We defend the weak and the marginalized because God says, I am their defender. Living justly has to be a response, an act of worship. If you don't begin there, you will worship justice instead of worshiping a just God. Please don't get this twisted. Do you love justice more than you love Jesus? I hear you. You're passionate about justice and caring for the oppressed. But I need to ask you, Christian, do you love justice more than you love Jesus? Because if you want justice and nothing but justice, all you'll get is what? injustice without jesus it becomes you killed my brother i'm going to kill your brother that's not true justice that's called vengeance and god clearly says in romans 12 9 vengeance is mine it's mine not yours if you want true justice you and i have to have love. True justice is only possible when it's grounded in a transforming encounter with the perfect judge who was judged on our behalf so that someday he can end all injustice without ending us. And unless you and I are floored, captivated, humbled by that truth, we cannot and we will not live justly. Living justly is an act of worship. Now, why is injustice called a yoke? Think about what a yoke is. It's describing people under the oppressive, unbearable weight of unjust structures and systems. And that's why living justly must move beyond charity to address systems and structures. When you and I hear the word righteousness, especially if you grew up in the church, we think about being a, a good person, personal morality. 
But what does being good even mean? Quick recap on what we've been talking about. The Bible, the Hebrew Bible uh, describes the word righteousness. Hebrew word for righteousness is the word sadekah. Say it with me. Sadekah. And it's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating people as the image of God with the God-given dignity and worth that they deserve. The word for justice is the Hebrew word mishpat, which literally means to treat people equitably. And it means, first of all, acquitting and punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of your race, regardless of your social status, regardless of who you know. Biblical justice says anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. That's why if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you ought rightly be righteously angry about our justice system. We do not treat people equitably. The justice system is broken. And Mishmet also, though, and more often refers to what people call restorative justice. It means going a step further and actually seeking out the vulnerable who are being taken advantage of and defending them, advocating for them, and helping them. That's why whenever you see Mishpat in the Old Testament, there are four groups of people, the quartet of the vulnerable, that appear over and over again. The orphans and the widows and the immigrants and the poor. Over and over again. Over and over again. That's why it's beyond charity. Mishpat calls for way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. Now why do we need to lose the change of injustice? Because you don't need to look all that hard to find evidence of how inequity is woven into the social structures of our world. Listen, it is usually right at this time that I go off on, you know, a bunch of statistics. And I, can I just say, do your own homework. Hey. Do your own homework. You have a brain. Do your own homework. But just to get you going, you'll see on your screen a tale of three cities the state of racial justice in chicago it is one of the most comprehensive studies done at uic on how racial injustice is embedded into every structure of the city of chicago study it learn it pass it along to your family members who are like what systemic injustice and when you look at it you realize that it's not enough just to save people's souls. And let's be clear about this. Jesus never just saved people's souls. He healed bodies. He challenged the religious and political status quo. It doesn't just say, untie the cords of the yoke. It says what? Break it. Break it. You want to have to deal with social structures that weigh people down, or as someone has, 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 has aptly described, you can't just save bodies flowing down the river. At some point, you have to ask, what's happening that's causing these people to float down the river in the first place? Who is throwing them up in the river, into the river in the first place? It's not enough just to get the kids out of bad schools. We have to change the school system. 
It's not enough to get a good lawyer to make sure there's fair representation. We need to change the criminal justice system. It's not enough that we have a handful of good police officers. We need to change the law enforcement system. It's not enough to elect a handful of good politicians. We need to change the political, what, say it with me, system. And as one sister pointed out, it's not enough to have one black actor. We need to change the system. When Charlotte happened, the evil demonic event that was Charlotte, I came across this, this powerful letter that this black sister wrote to her theater acting community. Dear theater friends, if you're looking at Charlotte and think they're white supremacists, I urge you to take a closer look at the ways that you support, perpetuate their ideology, reinforce their narrative through your storytelling practices. See, every time you hire a predominantly all-white creative team because they were the best fit, every time you cast an all-white cast because you don't think a person of color makes sense in this world, you're unwittingly reinforcing white supremacy and systemic racism. When your main stage is all white and your artists of color are relegated to second stages, workshops, pipelines, emerging artist groups because they're not ready, make no mistake about it, you are feeding white supremacy. Charlottesville is an example extreme manifestation of the backwards mythology we all perpetuate in small acts every day. You say you want to fight? Then fight it in your everyday practices. Make different choices. Hire different people to animate your stories. Program different people to tell those stories. You want help? Need some instructions? Then DM me. Are you getting a sense of what, what it means? See, justice and equity has to do with the exercise of power. You, just, you and I just need to get real with the fact that some people in our culture and our society have more or less, depending on where you fall in the racial hierarchy. And dismantling systemic racism requires us to recognize and name, we have to name, the inherent privileges afforded to some and not others. White people, you think I'm picking on you all the time, right? That's because in some ways, you need to get this. Look, nothing gets white folks more upset than whenever I talk about white privilege. You know the common refrain. Uh, uh, say something like, but my family was dirt poor. Or, or I had to work for everything that I got. And I want to say, yes, 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 you did. I'm not denying any of that. But privilege when it comes to race is about unearned rights. It's about rights afforded to you simply because of the color of your skin. It's what some, somebody has called the invisible backpack of privilege. It's about the fact that you can walk into a store and shop without being followed. It's about the fact that you never ever have to worry about being pulled over simply because of the color of your skin. It's about the fact that you will never get passed over for a job interview because of your name. It's about the fact that you'll never have a virus named after your ethnicity. Because if there ever was a white virus, it wouldn't be called a white virus. It'd simply be called virus. 
Privilege is about how hard you've, it's not about how hard you've worked. Privilege is unearned access and power because of your race. And if we don't, this is key, if we don't acknowledge privilege, then we don't acknowledge the pain of others who have not been beneficiaries of that privilege and are reminded every single day that privilege is afforded to some and not others. And I just need to say this. I don't know why the concept of unearned access and privilege is so hard to grasp for Christians. Is that not the basis of our faith? Is that not the basis of our faith? We are a people of unearned privilege and access. I don't understand why it's so hard for us to grasp this concept. The beginning point of our faith is we get what we want. Say it with me. Don't deserve. This is a gospel issue. So who are the righteous? And I've quoted this multiple times. The righteous in the Bible are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. And the wicked are those who are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And if you're sitting there going, um, can you give me an example of what that looks like? Sure. How about Jesus? How about John 13, verse 3? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things, listen to this, he put all things under his power, under his authority, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So listen to Jesus literally is given all the power. You think you have advantages? Jesus is given all the power, all the authority in the universe. And what does he do? Verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I need you to look at me. Kingdom people, power is not given for you. Kingdom person fundamentally understands that power, privilege, advantages is given for the flourishing of others. Servanthood, flourishing of others, is the fundamental reason why out of grace, you have the advantages and the privileges and the power you have. And every single day, child of God, you'll be faced with a decision. Every single day about whether you will leverage whatever power advantages you have for yourself or so that it can lead to the flourishing of others in doing justice and loving mercy. Living justly must move beyond charity to address systems and structures. Verse 7, it is not to share your food, God defines what justice is, with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. So when you see, everybody say see, when you see the naked, to clothe them and don't turn away. Don't turn away. Don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. Why does God say when you see injustice, the oppressed, the hungry, immigrant, do not 
do not turn away because living justly begins and continues with seeing the injustice and not turning away. Think about your relatives, your coworkers, and people with whom you've had frustrating conversations who essentially say stuff like what? I don't see a problem. We elected a black president. We live in a post-racial society. 99% of the time, you and I know, the very people who say that don't have a single, deep, meaningful, intentional relationship with the people that they're talking about. This is why I've said over and over again, sometimes it's not just a compassion issue, it's a what? Proximity issue. Proximity is power. You can't love from a distance. You can't commute to a calling. You have to see the problem. You have to see the injustice and not turn away. And everything, some of this is happening to us already. Everything wants us to go, I don't want to see it anymore. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I want to turn it off. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. It's costly. But if you and I want to live justly, we have to see the problem, see the injustice. And even if everything within us cries out, I don't want to keep looking, do not turn away. Do not turn away. And it's right here that I need to push us a little bit more and say this. I'm saying a lot of really hard things this morning. Living justly requires not just seeing and not turning away from our current reality, but I believe that it also requires seeing and not turning away from our past reality. Maybe, just maybe, the racial wounds that continue to fester in this country, the cancer that is racism, that is ravaging this country's soul, is the collective unwillingness to see what really happened and not turn away. Does this make sense? The collective unwillingness to see, we can't just turn the page. We can't just move on. Moving on requires that we do the uncomfortable work of looking back in order to move forward. We have to. Why? Because we can't turn from sin that we pretend don't exist. I've said this before. Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative talks about how when you go to Berlin, you can't walk a block without seeing reminders of the Holocaust. Why? It's to say to the entire country, we can't let this happen again. We can't heal from our past if we will not own our collective story. But we don't have the same attitude in this country. Matter of fact, we do the opposite. Why is there any controversy about removing Confederate monuments and statues? Why is there any controversy around that? Do your history. If you look at history, Confederate monuments and statues are built for two reasons. One, as an act of defiance against the Union. And secondly, to intimidate black Americans to say things will never change for you. 
And we're arguing about, should we get rid of this? There's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. In order for there to be true peace, false peace has to be disrupted. Too many of us have opted for false peace, kumbaya, at the cost of true peace. But there will be no true peace in our land until there is full ownership of this country's past history, acknowledgement of it, and a collective willingness to see, not turn away, and corporately repent. The reason why there's no racial healing in this land is because there are too many Christians who say stuff like, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. And I'm going to talk more about corporate repentance in a couple weeks. What if more Christians, instead of being defensive, express genuine sorrow, grief, and regret for the historic and contemporary consequences of racism. And simply said, I acknowledge, I acknowledge the racism was wrong, that it was evil, and that it has caused an entire system built around enslaving some people has caused such harm and destruction and devastation to my black brothers and sisters. What if more of us said, I have been too passive, too quiet, too uncaring, and too uninvolved for too long. I repent of that, and I commit to doing different. You know what would happen? God will hear our prayers, forgive us of our sins, and heal our land. Living justly begins with seeing and not turning away. And lastly, living justly is about solidarity. Solidarity. See, I've said for years that the justice movement that can change the fabric of our society will not happen until those who are not affected, those who are not affected, are just as outraged, are just as angry, are just as committed as those who are and stand in solidarity with them. So in some ways, I am hopeful at the movement currently that there are not black brothers and sisters that are joining the movement, but I'm going to be cautiously optimistic. I'm going to wait and see if you're still in it when it costs you something. Can I talk to my Asian brothers and sisters for a second? And in some ways to my Latino brothers and sisters. People, unless and until we come to grips with anti-blackness in our own communities, we cannot be the allies that our black brothers and sisters need. Unless you and I are willing to be honest about anti-blackness in us and in our communities, we cannot move forward to be allies. Do you hear me? My Asian brothers and sisters, that have been co-opted by the myth of the mono-minority. And again, if you're going, can you tell me what that is? No, study it. Look it up. The myth of the mono-minority that was created by the dominant culture to divide us from being allies with our black brothers and sisters. Where does true solidarity come from? Notice what Isaiah says. He says the oppressed, the hungry, the poor, wanderer, the immigrant, that is, and the naked are, he doesn't miss any words, they're your flesh and blood. 
flesh and blood. In Hebrew, that literally means blood relatives. It's what you and I call today family. What God is saying to them is there is a solidarity and interconnectedness and interwovenness that you have with them that your culture has blinded you to, that the family you came from has blinded you to, that the church you grew up in has blinded you to, that your society has blinded you to, that God says, I am not blind to. One time Jesus is asked by a lawyer, who's my neighbor? Who am I responsible for? And the lawyer's culture had conditioned him to say, my neighbor is someone of my own race. That's who I'm responsible for. My neighbor is someone of my socioeconomic class. That's who I'm responsible for. My neighbor is someone of my political persuasion. That's who I'm responsible for. And do you remember what Jesus said? He flips the question. He goes, who's my neighbor's wrong question? He says, ask this question. Who can you be a neighbor to? And the only answer is anyone in need. Who is your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The question, am I my brother's keeper? The scripture says resounding white. You are your brother's keeper. This is what anchored Dr. King and what allowed him, enabled him to come to Memphis in April 1968. Despite mounting pressures, including credible threats against his life, Dr. King goes to Memphis because of 1,300 mostly black sanitation workers who were on strike. Do you know what? Their, their working conditions were so dehumanizing, so inhumane, that their rallying cry, literally their rallying cry was, I too am a man. The problem is most black Christians and folks, or white Christians and folks, didn't care risk their reputation to help a bunch of poor black garbage men. But Dr. King explained to them, they're not just garbage workers, they're your brother and your sister, your flesh and blood. And he called on the white community to intervene on their behalf, just like he would do for your own mother, for your own father, for your own brother, for your own sister. And it was in there that he gave his last sermon. Parts of which you and I are very familiar with, but you need to understand the context of where this comes from. He says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Be concerned about your brother. You may not be on strike, but either we go up together or we all go down together. Let's develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. How do we develop a dangerous and costly unselfishness? So here's the surprising twist of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice wasn't, I'm going to mete out perfect justice because if God did, none of us would be around. But instead, God gives us a gift, the life of Jesus. And Jesus did righteousness and justice, and yet he dies on behalf of the unrighteous. But then God raises Jesus from the dead and declares Jesus to be the righteous one.
And the amazing news of the gospel is that Jesus now offers his life to the unrighteous so that the unrighteous can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. Paul says in Romans 2.21, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And the earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a status, but as a new power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprisingly new ways. See? If God declares someone to be righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response, what, is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it is costly because it will demand that you and I courageously disadvantage ourselves to advantage the community. You know, kind of like having all the power and authority in the universe, but wrapping a towel around your waist and washing the feet of a hurting and broken world. See, I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. It's making other people's problems my problems. And it's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. He has shown you, a man, what is good, what being good is, what righteousness is. It is what? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see? If God seeks justice for the oppressed, I'm a pretty simple guy. He could only do one of two ways. One, he could seek justice supernaturally. God could do that in day. Or he could use us. And by some divine mystery and enormous privilege, God has chosen to use his people, empowered by his spirit, to seek justice in a hurting and broken world. And just as Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful committed people could change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I want to lead us through a short time of response to the word this morning. I want you and me to be able to not just walk away having heard this, but to respond, respond in prayer. And again, what anchors us is Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, God, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. God, will you see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting? And as this Psalm anchors our hearts today, Here's the first prayer that we pray. God, will you open my eyes to see the places where I have been unjust by ignorance, by action, or by inaction? And if and when God brings something to your mind, the only response that is appropriate is to say, God, forgive me and cleanse me. 
Here's the second prayer. God, will you open my eyes to see a wrong I need to make right, a person I need to befriend or defend, or places where I need to speak up where I've been silent? Show me. Show me. And the third and last prayer. God, will you open my eyes to see what privileges and power have been entrusted to me and show me how I can best utilize them to do justice and to love mercy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who is close to the brokenhearted. You are their advocate, their defender. As someone who is intimately familiar with suffering and injustice, make your presence especially near to my brothers and sisters who are crying out for justice in our land today. Please open their eyes to see the truth that because you died and rose again, Sin, evil, injustice, suffering, sickness, and brokenness will not have the last word. Someday you will wipe every tear from our eyes and make everything right. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. May our work for justice be an act of worship, a response to who you are. May our passionate love for you, Jesus, prompt us to spill out into the streets, into our neighborhoods, and into our city with radical abandonment to seek justice for our neighbors. In this Kairos moment, Heavenly Father, help us to choose faith over fear, hope over despair, love over hate. Help us to see and work to see your justice be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is in Jesus' mighty, powerful name that all of God's people pray. Amen and amen.